New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. We've all spent many years researching and exploring self-improvement. We've tried many formulas presented by highly intelligent people and brilliant communicators. And for a time, our lives seem to improve. However, try as we might, we often find ourselves falling back close to where we started. Why is it that inspiration is not sustainable? How can we truly embrace and sustain the brilliance we seek? Today we'll be exploring how to make the expression of our innate brilliance more predictable, less as a random accident and more as a probability with our guest, Arjuna Arda. Arjuna Arda is a radical brilliance coach. He is also a writer and public speaker and is the original founder of Awakening Coaching. He has trained more than 2,000 people to become awakening coaches over the last 25 years and is the author of many books, including The Translucent Revolution, Better Than Sex, The Ecstatic Art of Awakening Coaching, co-authored with John Gray, Conscious Men, and authors of Radical Brilliance. Join us for the next hour as we explore rebooting our innate brilliance with our guest, Arjuna Arda. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Arjuna, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be back with you. It's just my pleasure to have you back with us as well. I want to, to to have before we get into the brilliant cycle mm-hmm. that you you really have given a lot of thought to. I would like to go back to help our listeners know a little bit about you and your background, mm-hmm. and to go back to a wonderful story. Mm-hmm. You in your teenage years, you were a student at King's School in Canterbury. Mm-hmm. Your parents were very liberal and very intellectual, and. Um, you tell this wonderful story of meeting a Hare Krishna person. Yeah. So this was 1971. You know, the Beatles had uh, met Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in 1968. So it's just a few years later. So I was walking past Canterbury Cathedral. I was 14 years old, wearing this uh, very proper um, uniform. You know, school uniform, black blazer, pinstripe shorts, wing collar, very old-fashioned uniform. So I was walking past the cathedral. Canterbury Cathedral, and sitting under the shadow of the cathedral was this 
guy dressed in, you know, orange robes, shaved head with a little little kind of rat's tail down the back, chanting, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, building a little drum. So I waited till he was finished. I was fascinated. And I went up to him very, very timidly. I walked up and said, excuse me, sir, do you speak any English? He said, yeah, mate, come on, sit down. I'll tell you all about reincarnation and Krishna enlightenment. He was from the East End of London, you see. So uh, I got to befriend this Harry Krishna guy, and he told me all about these great things. And I thought this was finally what I was looking for. You know, this was not just a, a, a little tweaking with psychotherapy. This was a thorough reboot. This was like eliminate the ego, merge with God. You know, so that was great. So I invited him back to my study where I, where I, I, it was a boarding school. And that night I went to the red phone box. You know, we have those red phone boxes in England. And I, I called my mother and I said, hey, mummy, great news. I'm going to become a Hare Krishna. Now, my mother knew a little bit about the Hare Krishnas because she'd seen them walking up and down Oxford Street. They were the kind of, they were the laughing stock of everyone in London. So my mother did what my mother did. My mother was a fairly high-strung, emotional, and I guess we could say, God bless our soul, neurotic person. So she did what my mother did under such circumstances. She threatened to commit suicide. So that was not going to work. So I had to, we had to quickly forge a compromise and instead I learned transcendental meditation, which the Beatles had done, and I took up transcendental meditation for many years. So there you are, that kind of lunch like Jack and the Beanstalk, he, he, the seeds take root and he climbs the beanstalk. Okay. So, so you were climbing the beanstalk. Well, I certainly became a beanstalk anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a very tall person. A very tall, thin, beanstalk-like person. Right, yeah. and so then you... Uh, you've just been there done it all i mean you went uh to india you've mm. done you've done all these self improvement things you've gone through s you've gone through transcendental meditation i mean the, the you lit- name it right you name it i right. mean the litany is long and right. you and this was you know this was actually fueled i want to be honest with you it was fueled by suffering i mean my my family had an above average degree of psychological suffering I had a very small family, no brothers, no sisters, no cousins. But even among this very small group of people, there were three suicides in my family when I was growing up. So suicide was like the kind of family pastime. You know, when other people would play mini golf on the weekends, my parents would, my family would think about suicide. So, you know, it was, it was intense. And, and the people who didn't commit suicide were pretty earnest. It was like a sort of Woody Allen style upbringing. So... Really, a lot of this questing for self-improvement, including for kind of enlightenment and spirituality, was really initially fueled by psychological suffering, by realizing I was either going to go crazy or I was going to kill myself or I was going to have to find some form of transcendence. So we're going to get to those those two ideas, self-improvement mm. and also enlightenment mm. in, in a moment. Mm. But before we do, uh, mm. there's another story I would like for you to to share with us. Oh, and this the repertoire was, of stories. I know, <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, you tell the stories and they they really illustrate something that we remember. You know, when we hear it Someday attached. I'll have to tell you the story about the ginger ale on the airplane. That's one of my favorite stories. Oh, goody. <laughs> would, it, would it be appropriate in this? It's it's not completely connected with what you're talking about, but okay. it's a funny story. Okay. But anyway, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we can leave it, leave it for later in the show. Right? Excellent. <laughs> so I want to I go 
back um, to the introduction in your book with mm. uh, uh, Kute Blackson. Kute Blackson, yeah. Oh, Kute Blacks, yeah. Blackson. Yeah. He was given an assignment. His father was a minister of thousands, yeah. a, a church both in Ghana and in London, exactly. I mean, a huge cathedral yeah. in London. And, mm. and uh, he was given a, an assignment as a 13-year-old. Mm. And I, I so share that story because it's yeah. really about well, what Well, that's Kute's story. But, so Kute was, was the son of this minister, and one son, and the minister used to do healing. So these you know, long lines of people would be, and the, the minister would lay his hands on their head or something, and they would get healed. So one Sunday, he announced, next week, I will not be doing the healings. My son, who's 13, my son will be doing the healings. So Coot, he went into this absolute freak out. You know, the whole week, he's thinking, what am I going to do? I don't know how to heal. He's just like, his mind is spinning. His, son, his father won't talk to him about it. So finally, it gets to the Sunday, and it's his turn now to go up and do these healings. But he had no idea. He was a kid, you know, playing Xbox and stuff. He was just a kid, you know. But the thing is, the way that Koot tells the story is once he actually stepped up and had to do this, he felt something take him over. So he, he, he something apparently... Powerful things did happen that day. People did feel they got some kind of energetic transmission or healing, but he had no idea what he was doing. And that story illustrates that what we're calling brilliance in this book is not something you do. It's something you become available to. It's something that takes you over. It's more like you are danced by something than that you dance. So that is takes us to the story of the of this brilliant cycle. Yeah, mm. and that that first of all, you believe that it is an innate quality, or your experience is that it's that's an innate yeah. quality in all yeah. of us. Can you sure. say something about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I my main um, uh, way that I spend my time is I coach people, and I'm interested to coach people who. Um, who want to make a, a, a global difference. You know, I, I like coaching people who have a project that will really like change the face of medicine or change the face of tourism or change the face of technology in some way. I'm interested to work with people who can up the game for all of us and solve big problems. What I've noticed in working with people is most good ideas, they come when you step out of the way. When you actually remove yourself from the equation, something emerged. I, you know, I often forget, I forget the name, but do you, do you ever see that movie about the Indian mathematician who ended up at Cambridge in England? Uh, I know the story that he was like an uneducated, but he was... He, was, uh, he oh. used to pray to the goddess um, Saraswati, and these mathematical formulas would just come to him. Uh, he was educated. He was a, he was a mathematician, but but his these formulas that were original they came out of nowhere, and that's a pretty a lot of people talk that way. Like Albert Einstein, when he kind of you could say received the general theory of relativity, he was not in his laboratory working hard. He was laying in the bathtub, and it just it came. To, it was a revelation, and it's the same. Steve Jobs describes a lot of the innovation in Apple came as a revelation. It was like it was as though it was already there in the collective. And it requires somebody with a mixture of an open mind, but also with enough versatility in that area to be able to download it. And really, this is relevant, Justine, because, you know, you and I, we've been around for a few years. True now. enough. <laughs> and I think, you know, when I grew up back in the 70s, we had the feeling, well, we'd better get our act together because later 
things could get rocky. But it was things were pretty okay at the time. You know, it was like you know you, well, you could, yeah, you kind of rainy day assignment. We better we better shift up, change our ways. Now things are really changing fast. You know, there are wildfires in California, the likes of which we've never seen before. We just saw an area the size of Los Angeles burn. You know, as we're talking today, uh, we see just unbelievable. Political corruption and kind of brainwashing happening at a national level—just endless stuff is happening. It, you know, Rome is burning. You know, and it's not really time to fiddle. You know, it's yes. time. It's t- if 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 we care about future generations, if we care about creating some kind of sustainable future, there's no there's no postponing possible. It's time. It's all hands on deck right now. To to be as clear uh, a vehicle as possible for your best ideas and the implementation of those best ideas. And you can't mess around now. You know, you can't mess around in narcissistic spirituality. You can't mess around in some kind of transcendental, you know, questing for uh, altered states. You can't mess around in anything. It's time for really sober, focused contribution for those who are able to do that. And then there is the possibility that we can transcend our many challenges and actually forge a life worth living for future generations. But this is time to really think think carefully, what is a well-spent life? What is a life that is spent soberly, where you can rest one day and say, ah, I may not have solved every problem, but I sure did give my best. Well said. All right. We're off and running. Uh, I'm here with Arjuna Arda, and he is the author of Radical Brilliance. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to the website, also called RadicalBrilliance.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Arjuna Arda, and by the way, he spells his last name A-R-D, as in David, A-R-D-A-G-H, Arda. He's the author of Radical Brilliance. Arjuna, so let's just jump right in. Help us to know, you've given us a challenge. This is not time to just be a mere spectator mm. living in a cave somewhere, but, mm. but we really need to bring our brilliance, our mm. mastery to the fore, bring our gift, bring, bring whatever it is to this potluck smorgasbord, bring yeah. our gift, our tray, our peace to it. Yeah. So uh, where do we begin? 
Well, you know, um, Justine, a couple of years ago now, a little more than a couple of years ago, I had a car accident. And it was actually a, a major car accident. I mean, if you saw the car after the accident, it was like crumpled metal. You would just look at that car and say, oh, you'd, you'd cross yourself and say, there's no way that the driver survived that. But miraculously, I did. I actually walked away from that car without any broken bones. No one knows how. I mean, I was driving in the middle lane, so there was cars on the, uh, cars on the left and cars on the right. When the impact happened, I was knocked unconscious. When I came to... I was in the grassy area between the two directions of traffic. I have no idea how I got there. Nobody, no one actually saw it to explain it to me. It was like the car was picked up by angels and just sat down again. Now, I had, they, they, they put me in, a, in an ambulance because I was covered in blood and stuff, but there's actually no broken bones. I was able to fly home that night. But what I did have, which I'd never had in my life before, was really intense post-traumatic stress which meant basically I could lay down in a dark room and I was all right. But if I had to just answer a phone or something, I was completely went, would go into, my body would just freeze. And that lasted for three months. And I had the three months available. So I just, I really just withdrew for three months. As a matter of fact, the first time that I left that room and got in a car, it was to come to you <laughs> to do the interview for Conscious Men. So it was just, it was two years ago. Oh, that time. my gosh. Anyway, so while I was lying prone in this bed, you, you, you know, you end up asking yourself some deep questions. If you're just prone and your life is spinning, the, the life you've created is spinning somewhere outside the door, but you, you don't feel up to attending to it. So those kind of, those questions tend to emerge, like, you know, why am I here? What am I doing? What's my life about? Is my life well spent? You know, all these questions start to bubble up. And in this vacuum, in this kind of hiatus that I, that I had been f forced into from life as usual, what was revealed to me really through, just through contemplation was what do people have in common who are really making an extraordinary difference to the world? People like Lynn Twist, people like, um, well, we could, you know, the list is long, people like Barbara Marks Hubbard, many of the people you know, people who whose lives is all about contribution, all about shifting the game for everybody. What is it those people have in common? And as I was laying for, for months in this dark room, what, what was revealed to me, it was more, it was, you know, it was like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, if you, my father had a certain etiquette around jigsaw puzzles. He said, when you get a jigsaw puzzle, you should never look at the box. You should, you should not know what this is a picture of, right? That's cheating. You should inf instead tip the pieces onto a table, spread them all out. You don't know what it is you're putting a puzzle of. And then you start to put the similar pieces together. And it's only when you finally completed the puzzle that you can actually see what it's of. You should never look at the picture, right? That was his, his ethos. And I do jigsaw puzzles the same way now. I love to do jigsaw puzzles and, and that's how I do them. And so the way that this brilliant cycle revealed itself was like that. I was laying in the dark and little fragments would reveal themselves, but which, which were contradictory. So little like brilliance is about this, but, and then brilliance is about this. And they were contradictory values, like a jigsaw puzzle. But slowly it was revealed that what I was actually seeing was a cycle, cycling through different opposing values and and ideologies that are really opposed to each other in such a way that creates a whole life. And the result of these four movements coexisting 
is brilliant. So, so that's what we could talk about is what those, those four movements and how they coexist. Well, I'd, I'd love for you to help us to go through some of those movements as mm. best you can in the short amount of sure. time that we have. I know we could really go into a lot of detail, and the book really the does, book does it, and yeah. I'm so glad. And yeah. also your website is, yeah. is also an adjunct to that. Right. But um, so help us to right. know. Well, you can think of it like a clock, okay, with 12 at the top, three on the right, six at the bottom, nine on the left, okay? So the first movement is 12 to three, okay? Now, at 12 o'clock is what we could call moments of awakening. That means moments of transcendence where you have a recognition of the nature of infinity. That sounds perhaps very esoteric, like spiritual. And it's true that one access to that would be like meditation or prayer. But equally, people get that through sex. People get that through um, psychedelic drugs, through bungee jumping. You know, there are lots of extreme sports. There's lots of ways that you get out of your mind and into an experience of consciousness without limits. There's lots of ways to have that. So that's 12 o'clock, moments of awakening, moments where the usual constraints and boundaries of time and space disappear, and you're in a timeless, boundaryless space where there is no sense of me as a central reference left. At three o'clock. So before we go mm, to that, mm, uh, I want to say, um, so what's a, you, you mentioned some ways to enter it. I, I want to know um, what, how you also talk about how we can get stuck there too. Right. So I'd like, before we go to the next one, I'd love for you to say how we might get stuck there. Well, you get stuck anywhere in this cycle by thinking that that's the only purpose of life, you see. So if you have moments of transcendence like this, and then you think life is about transcendence, then you become stuck in a kind of path to enlightenment. So this is kind of like a people who are constantly searching yeah, for go, enlightenment. Going to India, going to gurus, yeah, because all you want You've is... You've done that. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, I was, I was an, a spirituality addict. And it's, it sounds strange if you're, if you're really... If you're really caught up in spirituality, it sounds strange to call it an addiction, but it really is. It becomes a way of avoiding your destiny, you see. It becomes a way of avoiding the gift you were born to give if, you're, if you become obsessed with transcendence. So you need it. You need to have that experience. You need to visit because it. Because you need to visit it. You need yeah. to have Well, think of it like going to the bathroom, okay? Okay. So if you don't go to the bathroom for a few days, you're going to get toxic, you're going to get headaches, you're going to get sick. Right. So that means going to the bathroom is essential. However, if we made our entire life only about the bathroom, if you never left the bathroom, you'd be wasting your life, you see, because life yeah. is also about eating well. It's also about sleeping. It's also about exercise. There's lots of components to a healthy life. And all of the stations I'm going to mention now can become obsessions. Okay. So this movement then from 12 to 3 is from awakening to creative flow. When we get to three o'clock, it doesn't look like spirituality anymore. It looks like artistic flow. It's like, it's the writer up all night writing. It's the painter. It's this musicians jamming together. It's an inventor. It's a, it's a social innovator. It's people who are just taken over by an unstoppable force that wants to express itself through It's sort of a, uh, like you describe it as a flow. A flow, creative okay. flow. So now, that's 12 to 3. Uh, yeah. 12 to 3. All right. Now, this is where I want to bring in one of your mentors mm -hmm. and the one who you dedicated the book to. Leonard Cohen. And yeah. that was Leonard Cohen. Mm -hmm. And because he really, that's, you learned this from him somewhat. Well, he uh, certainly or, embodied all four yeah. phases very strongly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, so describe why he embodied this. What, what, what 
help us understand who he was. Sure. Well, Leonard, you know, so the phrase we've just described is awakening to flow. And Leonard actually spent two years in Mount Baldy Zen Center with his Zen teacher, who at that time was more than 100 years old, um, really in this 12 o'clock, really. I mean, he wrote this incredible song called um, Love Itself, which is really about these moments of transcendence. So it's transcendent. Yeah. Um, and then he came out of Mount Baldy with little fragments. He had just one notebook that he had created in two years. And this then, these fragments, which are really what we're talking about, these little kind of tremors of creativity that rise on their own out of stillness, these became the album 10 New Songs. It was released in 2002. So that's in that three o'clock phase. Creative flow. Is yeah. the creative flow. And that's where you talk about that tremor. The that tremor is actually more like five past 12, okay? So 12, okay. 12 o'clock is, 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 pure, is pure transcendence. Okay. Just after 12, right after 12 in the clock are these tremors, tremors of just very, very faint tremors. It's just like it's hardly noticeable. The best way to access that is tiny pockets of pleasure in the body. You know, if you, if you just stretch your body a little bit and you just feel, there's just a little place of feeling good, a little bit of feeling good, that's like a tiny tremor. If you let that build and build and build, it becomes creative flow, you see? In Kashmiri Shaivism, if you're familiar, if you've heard of that, it, they talk about it as spanda. Spanda is the natural vibration of energy that happens just this side of emptiness. So, so now we're entering... Three o'clock, yeah. and we're there. But I remember something you said in your book, and, yeah. and help me to understand this, uh -huh. is as, as a coach, yeah. you spend an inordinate amount of time with people who get stuck in this place. Am I well, remembering that correctly? Well, they get blocked correctly? between 12 and 3, yeah. 12 and yeah. 3 is, this will become a little clearer when we go through the whole cycle, okay. but, but okay. 12 to 3 is the most is for most people is the most blocked thing, and you'll see when I explain the whole thing, you'll see why because okay. it get, gets less attention than the other phase. So the movement from three to six, then okay. Okay. So we were in creative flow. So one particular kind of creative impulse that can happen at three is called intention. Now intention is a kind of creative impulse. It's a creative impulse now with a future image attached to it, and that's the movement from three to six. It's from it's from intention to accomplishment. And that's a whole different kind of brain functioning that we had from 12 to three, these tiny tremors. That's really about the relationship between serotonin and, and dopamine. From three to six, it's the movement from dopamine through testosterone for a man and estrogen and oxytocin for a woman as, as, you, as you get into action. That's how action is motivated for men and for women. But by the time you get close, to six o'clock, which is all about deadlines and boundaries and getting things complete, that's where the brain chemical noradrenaline kicks in, where you're now you're actually you're operating within boundaries and it becomes stressful. So the closer you get to a deadline at six, the more you've got adrenaline flowing in the blood and noradrenaline happening in the brain. So should I just finish the oh, cycle please, and then it'll make sense? Yes. Are we good for time? For yeah, the, to finish yeah, it? We, yeah, we've got maybe like uh, before we go to break, we've got maybe one minute. Okay. To so it. one of the key things about six, because you're now you're operating within boundaries and deadlines, is you have to make choices and you have to be responsible for those choices. There's a phenomenon that Gregory Bateson uh, coined back in the 20th century. Gregory Bateson, probably the one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. 
Gregory Bateson came up with this term called double bind. And what it means is when you have to make a choice and you're fully immersed in the material world, whichever choice you make, there's going to be some regret on the other side. In other words, you can't make a choice without regret or without some feeling of having made a mistake. So just after six, like 6.15, you get self-doubt, which is characterized by shame, regret, failure, guilt, remorse. And these are all unpopular feelings because of our reaction to Judaism and Catholicism and, and um, Protestantism. Because, because those have been forced upon us, like we, you know, we're sinners, we don't like those feelings. But actually, they do have a useful role to play. So we're going to talk about cycle. that useful uh, role that they have to play. Thank you. I'm here with Arjuna Arda, and he is the author of Radical Brilliance. And his website is Radical Brilliance. Dot com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Arjuna Arda, and he is the author of Radical Brilliance. And we're talking about the brilliant cycle. And we've gone through the clock, through the 6 o'clock. We've gone noon, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock. Now we're moving. And we're, we've just discussed why uh, shame and self-doubt and this sort of thing can also be beneficial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we talked about double bind, which was really coined by Gregory Bateson, that when at six o'clock, you're faced with these impossible choices. So a really good example of this people understand very easily is, you know, a young person inherits their family business. So the family business is creating widgets of some kind, and they've had people working in that business for their whole lives. So they've got people who, that's their family, right? They've got people in their 50s, 60s, all their life they've been working for this business, but also the business has shareholders who are family, friends, and family members. So now the business is losing money. If you lay these people off and automate, you are destroying the lives of people for whom this is like their family. If you don't lay them off and automate, you are potentially going to bankrupt family members and family friends who've invested. That's a double bind. You can't, it appears at least, there's no decision that you can make which will satisfy everybody. That's a good example of a double bind. So consequently, these kind of tough choices, if you just switch on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon or the TV or whatever, and just go to any drama station, it doesn't work quite so well for comedies. If you go for any drama, you'll find any episode of any drama is characterized by some kind of double bind. Should I do this? Should I do that? Oh, no, I just can't live with the consequence. You know? so, so and sometimes it's like, are you going to do something for somebody else and harm yourself? Or are you going to, are you going to harm, are you going to do something for yourself and harm somebody else. You know, it's, in other words, it's the dialectic between selfishness and altruism. But anyway, so six o'clock, you're caught in these feelings. Now, if you actually enter into the feelings, which is counterintuitive, because since the 60s, we've been so conditioned away from these feelings, which were central to religion, you know, 
we've, we've, we've rebelled against these feelings, but if you actually for a short period of time enter into feelings of shame and guilt and remorse, so you actually feel like, oh, you actually let it go, oh, no, I can't believe I did that. It actually, the visceral feeling of, ah, oh, it actually takes you through a process of learning and integration and self-forgiveness. And you come out on the other side forgiving yourself, accepting yourself, but now having integrated new learnings. And that means nine o'clock, and I'll just finish the cycle now, nine o'clock is the place of humility. That's where you feel, okay, I may not be Superman, but I'm doing the best that I can. I'm essentially a good person. I'm well-intentioned. I don't have access to all the information, but based on the little bit that I know, I'm doing my best here. And when you come into that place of humility and self-acceptance, it overflows and you have forgiveness for other people too. So the last phase from nine to 12 is the journey from that humility back into awakening. Because when you're in a place of humility, very quickly you start to realize, well, I am pretty limited. There's so much I don't know. There's so much I can't do. But look, life is going on anyway. Life is happening beautifully. You know, butterflies are beautiful and, and nature is beautiful and, and life happens in a synchronous way. So who is actually making all this, these beautiful things happen when I keep messing it up? And that humility and that curiosity about the real source of intelligence, if it's pointed inwardly, it becomes spirituality, it becomes meditation, it becomes the quest for your true self or your higher self. If that curiosity about what is really running the show is turned outward, it becomes devotion to God. But either way, it brings you back to 12, to another immersion in transcendence, and then the cycle continues again. And then it becomes hopefully a spiral. You're not just doing a rut of going round and round and round and just deepening the same old pattern over and over. You're you're actually going into a, a spiral. And there's some, hopefully a, a an enlivenment of it, of the cycle, each time you come back around to well, that. Well, my answer to that, honestly, would be kind of yes and no. Okay. okay. Yes, in that the more we relaxedly are willing to practice in all these realms, the, the flavor of each kind of is becomes more pervasive. But the no part is, it is actually, I don't, I wouldn't see it as a rut. I would see it as four very healthy and necessary phases of human life, which we don't want to denigrate any of them. In the same way, you know, I just mentioned, if we just do a parallel with health, phys good physical health. So we already mentioned going to the bathroom is necessary. Eating good food is necessary. But equally, sleeping is necessary for good health. So is exercise. So is time alone. So is time with friends. You know, there are lots of there are lots of things. Now, we don't want to say, oh, well, you know, sleeping and, and, and exercise and going to the bathroom and having a shower. Or it's like this rut. What we just want to transfer. No, those things, those things will always be components Even of a healthy life. Even though they're repetitive. Yeah, that they will always be the components of a balanced and healthy life. And mm -hmm. I would say that these four quadrants are and will always be the necessary components of a brilliant life. And we need to be willing, in my opinion, to visit all of them regularly. Now, one of the points that you make mm -hmm. that very emphatically mm -hmm. is that you don't have to complete yes, exactly. any one phase yeah. before moving on to the next. And that's yeah. an important point exactly. that you put, put out. Yeah. So, so you asked earlier about addiction. We talked, yes. we talked a few minutes ago about addiction to, to spirituality. And spiritual people are very surprised when you say that. How can you be addicted to spirituality? But you can. You can be addicted anywhere on this cycle. So you can get addicted to 12. 
If you get addicted to three, that's the artist who can't stop creating. That's, that's somebody who's addicted to initiating new things but never completes anything. That's addiction to the dopamine rush of novelty. Uh, six o'clock is addiction to dotting I's and crossing T's. That's somebody who's always got a to-do list. They become just this kind of doing machine, you know, and, and they keep volunteering for more stuff, you know. So it's kind of like the, the endorphin rush of, 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 of getting things done. Nine o'clock is a very, very real addiction, very prevalent in Marin County where we're sitting, or it has been, which is the addiction to self-improvement. You know, another seminar, another self-help book, another method, another training, another diet to try and improve yourself uh, which becomes eventually kind of hopelessly narcissistic, that you just keep wanting to make yourself better instead of just realizing I'm good enough. In my brokenness, I'm good enough to make a difference. So you can get addicted to any of these four phases. You can equally go into reaction or judgment to any of them, So, which is you know, kind of the opposite of addiction where you, 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 you think you don't like a particular part of the cycle and you want to avoid it. So there, there are some that would say... Uh, you, if, if you have a block, let's yeah. say, to something, let's say some sort of psychological or addictive block, that you cannot move on from that block until you unblock it, until you do that self-improvement or to in, you do that psychotherapy or you do whatever it is to break that block. Mm-hmm. So w- what would you have to say about that where many therapists would say, you, you can't move on until you unblock that trauma. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a little um, analogy I like to come back to. Um, I forget. Have you had children? Did you? Are you oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, I have. Yes. Yeah. So you probably remember when they were little, right? Uh, I went through a phase where I was a single father. So there was just me and the two boys, you know. And uh, my life at that time was I, I shared custody with their mother. So it was one week on, one week off. When it was my week off... I would hop on a plane and go fly somewhere to teach because I was a teacher, you know. When it was my week on, I would fly back from the airport on Monday, drive to the school, pick up the kids, and then the whole week the rhythm was, um, you know, I'd pick them up from school, we'd go to the soup, we'd go to the, the grocery store, we'd buy all fresh ingredients. We didn't use any frozen food, all fresh ingredients. We'd come home, we'd cook the dinner, we'd do the homework, we'd wash the plates, We'd do some cleaning. We'd um, prepare the breakfast for the next day. We'd prepare the packed lunches for the next day, get them off to bed. Then I would do more cleaning. I would fall asleep. Now, sometimes it would happen that one of my sons would wake up in the night vomiting, you know, like sick. So I'd hear, Daddy, and he'd be be, be vomiting, you know. So, uh, So I'm lying in my warm bed, absolutely exhausted. I mean, dog tired, not just from this day, but from years of living like that. I'm dog tired and I hear this in the middle of the night, two o'clock, daddy, you see. Now at a moment like that, you don't lie in the bed. You don't lie in the bed and introspect, you know, what is my truth right now, (laughs) right? Where is my calling? You know, what is my purpose? You know, I need to meditate first. You don't do any of that. You, you, You know what to do. You just know what to do. You don't have to think for a second. You jump out of the bed before you can think you're in the room and you know what to do in terms of, you know, cleaning up all the mess and wiping and getting the homeopathic medicine. But not only that, you do it with great kindness 
because this is a child who's vomiting maybe for the first time. So you do it, you manage to just be awake in, in, in a split second and with absolute kindness and presence. You change all the sheets, you put everything in the dishwasher, in the clothes washing machine, you get the child back asleep, you fall back asleep in your bed at three and you're up again at six in the morning to take the other child to school. I lived like that for years, you know. And the thing is, we are capable of that. We are capable of rising to greatness when we need to. We are capable of putting ourselves aside, not in a repressed way. We are capable of just snapping out of the trance of self-indulgence and doing what needs to be done. Now, here's my point about this, you see. People can understand that analogy. When my son was vomiting, it was clear this was not time to meditate. This was not time to think about how enlightened am I. This was not time to introspect. This was time to take immediate action with kindness. Now, here's my point. If you look at the news today, if you look at, if you look at Google News or you just look at the state of the world, if you're, a, if you're a person able to make a difference, if you don't see the aptness of this analogy, there's something wrong. You know, because... The world is crying out for intelligent, capable people to go make a difference. You know, it, it seems to me, to me anyway, it's blindingly obvious this is not a time for excessive introspection. It's not a time to go off on long meditation retreats. It's a time to gather up, to harvest the fruits of whatever you have done to transform yourself into a semi-decent human being and go make a difference. And, and that, that, to me, that's kind of an obvious thing these days. As you're talking about this, one of the analogies I mm. see in my own life mm. where I feel it's really necessary is that the gathering up, like yeah. we're gathering up, we're not working, at least for me, I'm not working in isolation. Let's mm. say I'm, I'm in political activism. I've mm. become fairly politically active. Good. It's necessary. And it, I, I feel like it is necessary. Right. And, when, and in doing that, I am putting myself in groups of people mm -hmm. who may or may not have had any training in group dynamics, right. you know, and or even introspection or, right. or looking at themselves. So they come, mm -hmm. we come together and there's a lot of static you right. know, going on because they haven't been working on themselves and so they're projecting out and everything. Mm -hmm. But for me, Artuna, that's not important. Yeah. I and I, I use with my group, I use, I say, hey, we're in a river raft mm -hmm. and we're going down the rapids together. We mm -hmm. may not all think yeah, alike or, or anything. And we're we're going yeah. down the river and we right. gotta do it together. We gotta paddle together no yeah. matter what. Yeah. And that's kind of part of the analogy. We're, we're mm. going to go on with that in just one moment. I just, I'm just i so sorry. We're going to have to take just a brief break. Sure. I'm here with Arjuna Arda, and he is the author of Radical Brilliance. His website is RadicalBrilliance.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Arjuna Arda, and he is the author of Radical Brilliance. And we're talking about whether we have to have everything unblocked to just get on with it. So is there any other thought that you might have? Well, yeah, you know, you were you were talking about how psychotherapists want to unblock things, and, and that's important. But it's important to, to put it in the perspective of the calling that we have and, and, and what needs to be done today to move move the game forward. So, you know, I, I work, as I mentioned to you, I work with a, a few clients per year. I work with people very intensively and mostly they're working on big projects. They're working on things that can change the world. And if a client, coaching client comes to me caught up in something, so it's such that it's derailed the mission, then we'll take time out and we'll take a few minutes to see where that has got caught up and what we need to do to get him back, get him back on track again. But once we've got him back on track, it's back to moving his mission and project forward so that he can improve the lives of other people and the lives of people not even yet born. So he can leave a legacy for future generations. So we do need to get unblocked because if we don't unblock things, we become tripped up by our own limitations and by our own narcissism. So we do need to, when we, when we start to interfere, we do need to take ourselves out of the way again. But then what's really important is the flow of brilliance, is the flow of an intelligence greater than the human mind that can flow through us. Right, right. And, and that's really needed right now more than ever. More than ever. That it, we, it's, it's just imperative. We, we can't uh, just sit around on our... our uh, Laurels. Deck chairs. <laughs> I, the analogy of uh, the Titanic's going down. Yeah. We're not going to rearrange the deck chairs. Yeah, yeah. You know that mm. that's just not going to happen. Or I think you use the analogy of thinking that uh, that we when we look at our belief systems and we think that we've kind of solved them and we but we're still living within the cell without our without freedom. Yes. We, we mm. think, oh, we've just freed ourselves from all of this, yeah. Uh, yeah. but we really haven't at all. Mm -hmm. And which goes back to, goes back, takes us back to these beliefs that we have. And uh, how important is it to, to really know our, our belief systems and how they're driving us? Well, I think, you know, it's important to recognize an unnecessary belief uh, or a, a, something that is simply arbitrary opinion and to realize, you know, a, a really good mantra would be like, who says, who says it has to be like that? You know, who, who made the rules here? You can, uh, and this is really the meaning of disruptive economies or disruptive innovation. Disruptive means to, to throw a spanner in the works of business as usual. So now we can see disruptive banking, you know, I mean, for example, uh, PayPal is, is, was disruptive banking. Airbnb is, dis, is disrupted the whole in, hotel industry. So a lot of a lot of new brilliant ideas disrupt what we think of as the way it has to be and so i have a client now who's disrupting tourism like you know do we have to go to really unecological hotels which are you know destroying the local landscape drink bottle water from plastic bottles is that really the best we can do or could we go on vacation in a way that's actually sustainable so that's disrupting the hotel industry disruptive industries or disruptive innovations are really require us to challenge our beliefs and our thinking so you're you're saying uh, we don't need to be fearful of that kind of disruption no we need to welcome it welcome yeah. it yeah Absolutely. And, and it means things will change. Yes. It, things will things change. have to change, yeah. And when you look at these facts, you know, facts are either true or not true. Right. Opinions. Are, are either useful or not useful. Yeah. Useful 
are not useful. Yeah. And I like that analogy mm-hmm. to say, okay, I have this opinion about something and you can just, that's a mantra you can use or yeah. I can use for myself exactly. to say, okay, is this useful or not useful? Yeah. So a good example would be, and if you go, if you go to Paris, right, uh, a statement like Paris is the capital of France, anybody who understands the words would say that's a fact, you know? Um, on the other hand, uh, if you were to go to Paris and then have the thought, all French people are stupid, right? Well, that's not a fact because, I mean, French people would not agree, right? But if you're in trying to enjoy a holiday in France, it's probably not a useful thought to have. <laughs> it's, going to, yeah. it's going to reduce the, uh, the way you enjoy your holiday. And there are lots of things like that. You know, there are thoughts which cannot be proven one way or the, the other. There are opinions. And then the most useful thing is to ask is not, is it true or would everybody agree? The thing to ask is, is it a useful thought that actually enhances my ability to contribute and make the world a better place? Exactly. And the other word that I love, is it effective? Yes. Not, is it always going to work out, but is it effective in this moment? And will, yeah, what effect will it have? And mm. as best as we can judge, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, can you help us? Uh, we won't have time to go through all the different ideas that you might have, but what is a useful or or one most productive thing that we can do to initiate our own brilliance. Right. Well, the book, as you know, the book is divided into two parts, the map and the territory. So the map describes this cycle and how it can become a very accurate map to predict where brilliance is blocked and what to do about it. The territory really re-examines as many different parts of our lives as we can to see how every aspect of your life can be tweaked in terms of brilliance. And one of the things we talk about the, the practice, if you were going to do one thing, if you could just do one thing that is the most effective innovation to increase brilliance, it's to have some time where you sit doing nothing, all right? Uh, where you just sit doing nothing, right? Doing nothing. So my instructions for sitting are very simple, you know, is, is uh, uh, put, your, put your bottom on a chair, either cross-legged or sitting up, and uh, put on a blindfold or a sleep mask so you don't even need to, you need to worry about closing your eyes. Your eyes can be open or closed. So step one is put your bottom on the chair. Step two, put on the sleep mask. Step three is set a timer for like 30 minutes so you don't have to worry about the time. And step four is, step four, there is no step four. There is no <laughs> step five. There is no step six, you see, because that's all you've got to do is just sit there because once you've put on the sleep mask, and you've set the timer. The rest is not up to you. You see, if you have loads of thoughts and irritation, it doesn't mean you're not good at it. It just means that's what's happening. And if you actually just patiently allow to happen, whatever happens, sometimes you're itchy, sometimes you feel restless, the only rule is don't get up before 30 minutes. Just stay and observe. That process of simply observing will actually bring, um, it's probably the most effective way to bring magic into your life because by observing and just letting these irritated impulses just pass or whatever, or blissful or whatever, or fantasies, just by allowing them to pass, something else emerges, which is not an act of volition at all. Now, people often worry like, oh, I'm not good at meditation because they think of it like something you do. But actually, it's not that, that's why I don't use the word meditation. I just say, just sit down and don't do anything. And what needs to happen will happen on its own. 
Well, I really love that, Arjuna. I love it that you even say, put on a blindfold so you don't even have to worry about whether your eyes are open or closed or mm-hmm. struggle with that. I mm. just I just love it. Yeah. And I also like the idea, if you do this over a period of time, yeah. it's been my experience uh. that then you develop a knowingness that you you enter it and your body and your mind and all of your all of your being it says oh i know what we're doing now right you know it starts to yes. get used to it that's why it's so, called waking up you, uh, see, you you just wake up from the trance of all that buzz that's going on you just wake up or you just unvelcro from it enough that you get sober again you just become a decent human being who realizes the simplicity of what he's called for. And and then would you suggest possibly like as you come out of this, the timer goes off and you come out of this, you might have a little something to write with? Sure. Or, or, or Sure. Well, that's explained in the book that we talk about tickle and capture practices, which happen right after 12. So when after you have moments of transcendence, there will be this this little kind of buzzing, little little tremor, which is often experienced as pleasurable or blissful. And if you just allow that, again, there's no doing involved. You just allow it to become stronger and more pronounced. It will become uh, poetry. It will become a melody that becomes a song. It becomes something. And that is really where all new and beautiful and creative and humorous things come from, is out of those initial tremors. And that takes us back to the beginning of our conversation, is Mm. that original thought mm-hmm. that's not a a recycled thought not it's, repetitive or imitative yeah it's it's a a new thought that's mm-hmm. that's never been thunk before never been thunk before <laughs> and that's what we're needing these mm. these days yeah. uh, that's where the innovation comes from that's where the creativity comes from yeah so it's not struggling for it it's just sitting down and Waiting for it. Yeah. You call it what? Waiting for grandmother or something. Waiting for grandma. Yeah. I don't know if you've got time for that story, but there's a little analogy in the book about waiting for grandma. Yeah. Just, just I, we, we might have it. Try okay. it. Well, yeah. So the the the, um, the analogy I give is, you know, that you're. It's a Sunday morning, right? Sunday morning, and uh, the family's over, and grandma is going to come for lunch. So somebody, so you, so here I am. I'm preparing the lunch, and somebody says, "Is there something I can do to help?" I say, "Sure. Look." Grandma doesn't know this house. We've, we've moved recently. What I'd like you to do is take this deck chair, go down to the end of the driveway, just wait for Grandma, just wave to her when she comes. Okay. Clear? Very good. So after half an hour, Grandma's not there. So I walk, I stroll down with my beer in hand. I stroll down to the end of the driveway to look for this person sitting there. I'm wearing my chef's apron. I say, how are you getting on? And the person at the end of the driveway says, well, I don't know. I'm not very good at this. I said, what do you mean you're not good at it? Well, the tra- there's traffic passing, and I have not been successful in slowing the cars down. I say, what? We didn't say anything about slowing the cars down. I just said, keep an eye out for grandma. Well, yeah, you say, yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. But, you know, I don't feel blissful yet. Blissful? Who said anything about blissful? I just said, wait for grandma, you see? Wait for grandma. So what does wait for grandma mean? Wait for grandma means just relax and wait and grace will come, you see? Grace will descend. Grace has a gravity. Grace pulls you down into herself, but it requires us to patiently relax and wait for grandma. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That was beautiful. Uh, I'm. We've run out of time and I'm here with Arjuna Arda, author of Radical Brilliance. His website is radicalbrilliance.com. You can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. 
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3654. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.